The gospel text for the morning is from the 24th chapter of Luke. The four gospels treat the post-resurrection narrative slightly different in focus, but many things are consistent. One thing that is consistent is the people in the wake of Easter are on the move. It is not a static experience. Listen for God's word. As they came near the village to which they were going, Jesus walked ahead as if he was going on. But they urged him strongly, saying, stay with us, because it is almost evening and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took bread, blessed and broke it and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked to us on the road, while he was opening the scriptures to us? That same hour, they got up and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and their companions gathered together. They were saying, the Lord has risen indeed, and he's appeared to Simon. Then they told him what had happened on the road and how he had been made known to them in the breaking of bread. The word of the Lord. In James Mishner's book, Iberia, he describes the medieval pilgrimages in Europe, the most famous of which began in Notre Dame in Paris and moved 900 miles through France and Spain out to the seaside cathedral of Santiago de Compostela, a place where Jesus' brother James was supposedly buried. Who would have made this pilgrimage of 900 miles so long ago? Well, criminals did it. They were sentenced to do it as part of their punishment. Ordinary Christians did it as an act of piety, and royalty did it for penance and to show solidarity with the people. It was a hard journey, and through that journey, they strove toward this magnificent cathedral. When they got close, there was to be one person who'd get up early one morning and spot the spires of the great cathedral in the distance. And when that happened, the tradition was not for that person to say, oh, there it is, or I see it, but rather to exclaim, my joy, my joy. That's not a bad way to think about church. Put simply, the church is a group of people on a journey, hoping in the midst of present challenges to hold a vision of our destination. These two are held in constant tension, the road and the destination. There's a danger when we focus only on the de destination and forget the journey. It is not enough to say, oh, all will be well in the great hereafter. The suffering and violence of this day is real and brutal and God denying something must be done. But there's danger too if we focus just on the journey and forget the destination altogether. There's a danger when we lift up only the promised land and not the wilderness. It doesn't work to think that by grinning we can make it Easter, ignoring the real world of Good Friday experiences. Those who focus only on the journey, as apparently the two followers of Jesus were doing in the 24th chapter of Luke, tend to lose sight of my joy. The conversations of those only on the road, only about what we are doing now, only concerned about the specifics of today, finally deteriorate into moralism or suspicion. Church can't be church 
without a sight of our destination, which is not our creation. One year, the board of a university campus ministry was talking with the chapel staff about religious life on campus. An older alum who was on the board asked, what are, what are students like these days anyway? There was an awkward silence in the room. Finally, the Methodist chaplain spoke up. Well, I think you'd be pleased with our students. They are ambitious and career-oriented, of course, but they also volunteer a great deal. They work at shelters and at food kitchens. They tutor after school. They help build houses for the poor. As she was growing through this litany, the Jewish chaplain around the table just started grinning more and more and laughing to himself. Finally, she stopped and said, Eddie, what's so funny? And he said, I'm sorry. What you're saying is that our students are good people, and you're right. And you're saying that they do good work, and you're right about that too. I was just sitting here thinking that the only thing they lack is a vision of salvation. Everyone looked down the table at their Jewish colleague. He continued, if you do not have some vision of the God who is redeeming our lives, you cannot get up and go to a soup kitchen every day. Sooner or later, it will beat you down. If we are only on the road, only concerned about today, only concerned about each other, no vision of the destination, finally that road will beat us down. Like on this road to Emmaus, our gospel text, these two are on the road when incognito, risen Jesus, joins them on the journey and begins to talk. It says they were talking about all those things that had happened before, before Jesus showed up. Now Jesus is there walking beside them and Jesus talked about scripture and Jesus talked about faith. And Jesus talked about the promises of God. And then in one of those wonders of Scripture, the road turns into the destination. The guest on the road, Jesus, becomes the host as he breaks bread for them. At places like Emmaus, we see, I think, the relationship between the pilgrim road and my joy, the destination. In Matthew's gospel, we get a glimpse of what happens when the road and the destination are wrenched apart. In the parable of the master who leaves a servant in charge, the chief servant is responsible to see that the other workers are cared for and do their work. But after the master is gone for a long time, the head servant says to himself, forget this, he's never coming back. And he begins to commit violence against the other servants, which is Matthew's word, when the church loses its sense of what is ultimate, when it loses its sense of where we are going, the church comes apart. When we are on the road with no vision of my joy, no expectation that all this is going anywhere, we will begin to do violence to one another. I've been thinking all week, is violence too harsh a word? We will begin to quibble and carp. I know that. That's what humans do. We will also ignore and deny. We will cause pain for one another if we do not have that vision that God has given us of where we are headed. If we are not on the lookout for the spires of the city whose builder and maker is God, 
then we will be so far from God's love and joy and peace and hope. Several years ago, theologian John McCorrie addressed the distress a lot of us feel about talking about the end, the ultimate end of things. That's not usual casual conversation for us. The theological word is eschatology. Eschatology has to do with end things, ultimate things in regard to God. First, he said, some have a literal understanding of eschatology, as in the world will come to an end in a ball of fire, and we should look forward to that happening any minute. Okay. The problem with literal images of the end is that they are way too simplistic. It's too much like the cheesy fiction and weak theology of the Left Behind series. If you love that series, talk to me later and we'll work that out. <laughs> so because that was too simplistic, a second approach was developed. Not that the world will come to an end, but the world has come to an end. Easter defeated the powers of sin and in death once and for all, and now it's a whole new world. In Atlanta each year from the 1920s forward, the Ku Klux Klan would hold an annual march on Auburn Avenue. Auburn Avenue is Main Street in black Atlanta. And in the 1920s and 30s and 40s, when the Klan would march down Auburn Avenue, residents there would shutter their windows and lock their doors out of fear of the Klan. But in the 50s and 60s, after Brown versus Board of Education and other parts of the civil rights movement had begun to take hold, in 1965, when the Klan tried a march on Auburn Avenue, they, people there did not shutter their windows and they did not lock their doors. They stood on the sidewalk and laughed at the Klan. The Ku Klux Klan never marched down Auburn Avenue again. The long road to justice had reached a destination. It had, in some ways, dethroned the Klan. The problem with this, that it's all over and now it's new, is that if this present world is our destination, that's kind of a disappointment. Um, we still live in a Good Friday world, evidenced by no other reason that the Klan is on the rise again in 2015. I don't think, though, you want to go to the doctor's office tomorrow or to the grocery store or be stuck in Mopac traffic and say, hallelujah, now this, this is eternal life. I don't think we think that. So there was a third option, not that the world will end someday or that it's already ended, but that with God it ends every day, that our life and our world are filled with millions of small endings, whether it be the ending of life, the end of grief, the collapse of some vexing threat or fragile hope, and that in each of these endings there is the potential for God coming again. We see this all the way through Scripture. The women and men of the New Testament particularly hold this together. They really did believe that the world was going to come to an end at some day. The world is not immortal. It is created and sustained by God and will pass away, and yet they were faithful every moment of every day as they anticipated a future that was in God's hands. How do you walk the temporal road, hard as it can be, and yet anticipate the ultimate city of God? How do we fully engage the commerce of our life or the business of the church while keeping one eye peeled to the spires of the city of God that makes really everything we're doing today seem a little trivial by comparison? 
In the Gospel of Mark, it proclaims there will be signs in the sun and moon and stars and on earth distress among the nations. People will faint for fear and foreboding of what is coming, for the world will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in power and great glory. Now when these things to begin to take place, look up and raise your heads, for your redemption is drawing near. How do we live today in such a way that we do not hear those words as words of threat, of destruction, but as a promise that God will never leave us, never forsake us, and even when the worst things come upon us that can possibly come upon us, God will not be thwarted no matter what. How do we come to believe that the future, all future, our future has the face and the name of Jesus. In the church, in times of status quo and in times of transition, we, by how we do things, can look suspiciously like just another institution where conventional wisdom rules the day, where caution makes most of our decisions unless we have nurtured a view of my joy. Jonathan Kozel's book, Set in the South Bronx, Amazing Grace, tells the story of 12-year-old Anthony. Anthony's a street kid. He's seen drug deals. He's seen murders. His uncle Carlos has AIDS. Other uncles are in prison. But Anthony's a religious boy, and he writes down everything that occurs to him and everything that he experiences. He also talks a lot to Kozel about the kingdom of God, this 12-year-old talking about the kingdom of God. Kozel finally asks him, what do you mean when you say the kingdom of God? Anthony said, I don't know. And, and Kozel said, well, why don't you write it down? And he said, kind of like a homework assignment? Yeah, like a homework assignment. So Anthony writes a three-page essay about the kingdom of God that in part says God's kingdom. God will be there. He'll be happy we've arrived. People will come hand in hand. It'll be bright, not dark or gloomy like it is on earth. All the friendly animals will be there, but none of the mean ones. As for TV, forget it. If you want vision, you can just use your eyes to see everybody you love. No one will look at you from the outside. People will only see you from the inside. All the people from the street will be there. My uncle will be there, but he'll be healed. You won't see him buying drugs. There won't be any money. Mr. Mongo will be there, but he'll be happy for once in his life. The prophets will be there. Adam and Eve will be there. Edgar Allan Poe will be there, but not like somebody famous, just a writer teaching students. No violence will be in heaven. There'll be no guns or drugs or IRS. You won't have to pay taxes. You'll recognize all the children who have died when they were little, and Jesus will come and play with them, and at night Jesus will come and be with you too. Anthony's uncle Carlos died the next October, and the scripture Anthony got up to read at his funeral was, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, I make all things new. My joy. How are we going to be as a congregation in the months ahead? 
How do we organize and work and build and serve here and now, faithfully, but never lose sight of my joy? Worship and study and service are the core of a church's life together. After all, this isn't a social club, and we're not a civic group or a neighborhood improvement association or a recreation center. We are the church of the crucified and risen Jesus. If we do not keep our eyes on the worship of God, which gives us life through praise and prayer, the study of God to know deeper how we are to live, and the service of this world which God so loves, we will be lost. Do we dare hold these precious promises of God together through thick and thin, through challenge after challenge, being on the road, but sure of our destination? Not long ago, my former professor and mentor, Tom Long, was talking to another former student who's now a parish pastor. In that student's congregation were two elderly sisters, Etta and Sylvia, who in their age both become ill. Etta became an Alzheimer's patient. Sylvia had cancer and was placed in hospice care. The pastor would visit both of them and inevitably, whenever he visited Etta, she would say, what's the news from Sylvia today? And when she visited Sylvia, she would say, what's the news from Etta today? Well, Sylvia finally died. The cancer took her, and they had her funeral. At the funeral, they sang songs of that great city to which we are all traveling. They sang songs of resurrection. Through it all, Etta, the Alzheimer's patient, sat quietly in her wheelchair at the reception after the funeral, the pastor went up to her and said, Etta, I'm praying for you. Thank you, she said. And then she looked up at the pastor and said, what's the news from Sylvia today? Oh, what to say? The pastor said that the spirit gave her words to speak. She said, I looked right at Etta and spoke the gospel truth. The news from Sylvia is very good today. Here we are this morning, caught in coming and going and living and yearning and worrying and seeking. And this congregation, kind of like that medieval pilgrimage from what I can see so far, somewhere between criminals and royalty, is ready to journey farther down this road of faith and service all the while striving to keep in sight that city to which we are traveling, a city who has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And some of the time, it can seem like the night is so dark and we're a long way from home, but we have seen my joy. And I'm here to tell you as the newest member of your throng, the newest to join you on this particular journey, to join you in keeping our eyes peeled for signs of the life-giving presence of God, the news from the middle of our journey is amazing and grace-filled and hope-infused, and it is led and upheld and nurtured by the risen Christ who walks with us every single step of the way. And that, that is good news indeed.